1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection.
2: I get past the fluff to what's real. We go there, and it's fun, pretty crazy, and very revealing. Listen to Let's Be Real with Sammy J on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. For this week, Kristen, in case you didn't already know, we're talking about women in anthropology. Wait, we are. Yeah. Oh, 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 oh no. Oh. Oh,
3: what did oh, you wow. read? I read Women at Anthropology. Oh, the store. No,
2: that's my autobiography, which oh. I really appreciate that you read. Well, I mean, oh. I love flowy skirts. Yeah, so I'll, just, I'll talk about women in the social sciences, and you just talk about my killer wardrobe. I'll talk about going straight to the sales section, because I can't <laughs> pay full price. True story. Um, so right. today we want to offer you an introduction to my wardrobe again, just kidding to a fabulous women in anthropology, which does sound like a broad topic, but we're really going to zero in on the development of feminist anthropology and give you sort of a glimpse of some of the names who've worked in the discipline. All leading up to a fabulous episode on the fantastic Margaret Mead, which will be next time. Yeah, so
3: this is sort of laying the groundwork for the more detailed biography of Mead. And hopefully it'll help make more sense about the significance of what Margaret Mead was doing as well. And Ah. kind of put her in the context of anthropology At large.
2: Yeah, especially when, and not to get ahead of ourselves, but especially when you look at what an important figure Margaret Mead was and how much she contributed, when you look at it in the context of women in anthropology, the big headline topic, you realize what an early pioneer she was. And so now that we've gotten you all excited for the next episode, let's do a brief introduction as to what anthropology is, because I was originally going to be an anthropology major. Tell me more. Yes. Well, I feel like I've made it clear on the podcast before that I wanted to be Indiana Jones. And if you're going to be a a swindling archaeologist, you have to major in anthropology, because archaeology is a subtype of anthropology. And I really enjoyed the introduction, classes, it really opened my eyes, I was fascinated, and then I started to kind of think like, um well, what jobs besides archaeologists do anthropologists get? And then I read all this stuff about like, well, you can study populations and see how unhappy people are working in an office or something. And I was like, I don't know. I'm going to go do print journalism. That seems much more stable.
3: (laughs) And Caroline, I never wanted to be an archaeologist (laughs) or an anthropologist, honestly. But I did take an anthropology course my first semester of college, mm-hmm. and we learned a lot about the shakes, uh in the Middle East. And the thing I remember the most, though, to be completely honest, mm-hmm. is my professor's tiny eyes and very large <laughs> beard. And his eyes were so small; it was kind of hard to follow his his eye contact because it was one of those small classes where yeah. we were just around the table. Yeah, and he uh, was 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 challenging to follow. But good grief, <laughs> did he love! Anthropology, And it was one of those courses, though, where I saw it in the course catalog, mm-hmm. thought it sounded interesting, really didn't know that much about it at all yeah. and ended up taking it. And so it was fun to come back now so long ago. I mean, just kidding. I mean, like two years ago when I graduated <laughs> college. I'm so young um, and delve deeper into uh, anthropology and also see how it applies to what I'm doing now. Cause yeah. Caroline, I never would have thought sitting in that class when I was 18 years old that I would, you know, four years later be talking about feminist anthropology on a podcast. That's
2: right. Because
3: podcasts didn't even exist back then, Worlds Caroline. are colliding. You would have been predicting the future. It's true. well, let's not talk about the future. Let's talk about the past. Ooh, all right. Because that is a lot of what anthropology is all about. Anthropology, to get technical about it, is the study of humans, past and present, that draws on the humanities and the social biological, and physical sciences. And there are four different flavors
2: (laughs) of anthropology. That's right. Four flavors. We've already mentioned archaeology, which, of course, is the study of the past through material remains. But you also have sociocultural, which examines social patterns and practices across cultures with a special interest in how people live in particular places and how they organize, govern, and create meaning in their culture. You also have biological anthropology, which seeks to understand how humans adapt to diverse environments and how biological and cultural processes work together to shape growth and development and behavior. And finally, you have linguistic anthropology, which is the study of the ways in which language reflects and influences social life. And we're going to talk
3: briefly about the origin of anthropology, because it's important to know how it formed, because then you start to understand why people would be interested in focusing on women in anthropology and this other thing of feminist anthropology. So there are a couple of anthropology buds named Thomas Highland Erickson and Finn Silvert Nielsen, who got together. And they wrote a book, and they talked about how the basis of anthropology has really been around as long as humans have been nosy about what their neighbors have been up to.
2: Yeah, because what is anthropology? I mean, obviously, there's more to it than this, but it is observing the world around you and how it works together. And so, yeah, the first cave woman to gossip about a caveman well that was anthropology or the first caveman to gossip about a cave woman. Indeed, or in whatever combination you prefer. Yes. <laughs> um but they point out that the origins really lie with explorers, travelers, historians and philosophers. And of course they point to the Greeks, because you really can't talk about any social science or science in general. What types of salad? Worse? Mm, Without the Greeks. Yeah, that's right. Olives, so many olives. Um, so they point to the historian Herodotus, the philosopher Aristotle, and geographer Strabo. So these are people who, by virtue of what they're interested in writing about, are observing their worlds. And they also point to figures in the Muslim and Arab world, like historian Ibn Khaldun and explorer Ibn Battuta. But a lot of people trace
3: the modern discipline's origins to Eurocentric movements, including colonization. So in the 15th and 16th centuries, you have the age of discovery. So you have these Europeans discovering all of these quote, savages and quote, primitive peoples who and and we start to be curious about those kinds of cultures and then basically erasing them. And then in the 18th century, we have the age of reason, the Enlightenment, where everyone else is still kind of considered a savage or a passive other. But a lot of people say that when it comes to modern anthropology, as we think of it today, that really didn't start to emerge until The 1850s, which is when we started to see the first ethnographic museums established, particularly in German speaking areas, because they had started to collect data on
2: peasants and traditions. And, of course, ethnography is just basically the scientific study of people and cultures. Of course. So the basis of anthropology. Now, others still say that modern anthropology didn't get jump-started until after World War I, especially with famed anthropologist Franz Boas. Regardless of when you pinpoint the beginning of anthropology, these guys, Erickson and Nielsen, point out that uh, the way we think of modern scientific anthropology today started off in the West, and that's ten- that tends to be what scholars point to.
3: Yeah, and and as this very white Eurocentric view was developing, women were seen as something off to the side, as sort of a special interest group. Um, So when it comes to gender, it is worth noting that British Victorian social anthropologists did like to examine the relationships between the sexes, and they were curious about how gender relations played a role in evolutionary development. But interest in female roles began to wane and were considered less important.
2: Yeah, so the female sphere, all of that stuff. Women are in the home. How could that possibly be important? We're just going to keep them there, lock them away, and just focus on what men do. And this also extends to the development of the
3: hunter-gatherer model with the idea that men were doing all the important work, going out and hunting, and women were just, just gathering. <laughs> And it'll like be you do, gathering shoes. Just gathering all sorts of high heels and <laughs> handbags. Um, but we will revisit that and how that model began to get a little more nuanced when feminists came marching along in the 1970s.
2: Like they do. But so Rebecca L. Upton in the journal Anthropology in January 2012 wrote a great source on the development of feminist anthropology. And so she points out that nevertheless, despite the the fact that there was some victorian interest in gender roles and all that stuff in early anthropology for the most part gender was often synonymous with kinship or family and a monograph she writes might include just a single chapter on women or family issues in other words the issue of quote-unquote gender it wasn't a thing gender like she says it just means like oh it's another like term it's related to family and what women do on women time well
3: and this is also pre-margaret mead whom as listeners will learn a lot more about in the next episode I mean, she was the one who really helped break open this very concept of gender roles. Yeah,
2: absolutely. And so, therefore, in early anthropology, we've got androcentrism, which is just, you know, male focus, uh, because the people who were doing the studying of other people were dudes. Dudes. Yeah, Dudes were doing the dude
3: studying. Dudes were paying attention to dudes. And as Upton goes on to write, even though you do have these critical uh, contributions from people like Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict, um whom she worked alongside throughout her career, it wasn't until the 1970s and 80s, with the rise of feminist anthropology, that gender really starts to come more into focus. So as this is happening, you start to see research encompassing different viewpoints, this growing recognition that gender, yeah, is important and shouldn't be ignored. And also, too, this is really interesting to think about, the power difference between the researcher and the subject and how that can play a role in their anthropological portrayal rather than framing them as expert and informant, you have to equal those playing
2: fields as well, in a way. Yeah, and there was the realization that religion, development, and language can all affect how a culture views and understands gender. So when you leave out half the population in your research or your analysis, you don't really understand the full culture, do you? And so Upton also points out that exclusively using the term man, which can mean mankind, men, or both is ambiguous, and you're going to end up kind of picturing just dudes when they talk about men and man. I just think of a pile of Ken dolls. (laughs) Right there. But yeah, and so basically, who's doing the research matters. What you're researching obviously matters, but the way that you talk about it, and the way that the subjects talk about themselves is very important, and it was high time that people took all of those different variables into account. So, what is
3: feminist anthropology. What really happens when women are part of the center of the research rather than being in this little special interest group off to the side? So as we mentioned, this really starts to happen in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And anthropologists start challenging these notions that A, Men's work in creation of goods is the only work of value, i.e., like, it's important that they were hunting and gathering. Who cares? It was baskets of shoes. (laughs) B, women are and always had been innate nurturers who were tied to nature, which is really
2: interesting to think about. And then C, that all women experience gender
0: similarly.
2: Yeah. And so they start asking whether women's subordination was a, quote, product of male observer bias and privilege. And so Upton writes that feminist anthropologists and those interested in the study of gender began to challenge the simple ad women and stir model of ethnography and sought to bring attention to structural inequalities, the role of economic disparities, global dimensions to gender politics, the role of language, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, how all of this affects humanity, human rights and whatever. And that whole note on add women and stir was, and there. this may or may not still exist, we need some anthropologists to write in, but a lot of times when an anthropologist would write a paper or a book or whatever, there would be a thing tacked onto the end that says, and does this research also apply to women? Yeah? Cool. All right. Keep keep at it. Good job. And so that was not exactly a comprehensive way to incorporate half of a population, Um, because after all, the study of gender construction is not just the story of women. Women are not the only gendered items in the world. The story of gender is the story of both men and women, and so part of this upswing in feminist anthropology is the effort to overcome that idea that men are the normal, the standard, and women are the gendered thing.
3: And of course, this starts happening in tandem with the rise of second wave feminism in the West, because this is when it becomes increasingly important to recognize differences, not only between men and women, but also among women. And speaking of feminism, feminist anthropology can also be broken down into its own waves, which is a kind of funny side note that we talk about feminist waves. And then that makes me think of a period, you know, the crimson oh, wave. Sure. It's all just very connected,
2: isn't it, Carol? Well, that's all feminist anthropology is. That's what we're about to explain. Yes. It's, it's all about periods. And uh, yes, menstruation and baskets of shoes. You have to you have to weave the basket and then gather the shoes to put in them. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You would have made a fabulous anthropologist, by the way, Caroline. I I like to think
0: so. I would have taken your class. Thank you. For sure. Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something
0: And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises.
1: So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a
0: spoiler-free zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime. So when it comes to the,
3: these uh, crimson waves of <laughs> feminist anthropology, uh, we found a fantastic source from the University of Alabama Department of Anthropology, um, The first wave really starts in 1850 and goes to 1920. And the main goal of the first wave was to simply include women's voices in ethnography, which, again, is
2: just the scientific description of people's customs in various cultures. Yeah. And so at this time, the info that was out there about women, whether it was in our culture or some other culture far across the sea, was largely... Gathered, if you will, by male anthropologists talking to male subjects. So it was men in the culture talking to male anthropologists about what the women might be doing. And I have a feeling that a lot of them were like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's fine. So they were hunting and gathering. Indeed. Well, gathering information. But that just means all the more that we should emphasize some of the names of women who were active during this period, including. The quite impressive Elsie Clues Parsons. She had gotten a sociology Ph.D. from Columbia in 1899 when she then turned her attention to anthropology. And she really got active as a social reformer who used those ethnography skills to encourage people to think differently about their lives. She ended up traveling with male anthropologists to the Southwest. And she really thought because of her own experiences that those pesky restrictions on men and women working together were pretty dumb. She ended up using her privileged position to establish the Southwest Society, which helped support anthropologists like Ruth Benedict, who we'll talk about in the next episode. Women supporting women. I know. She's fantastic. Then
3: we have Alice Fletcher, who was one of the first professional women anthropologists and also one of the first women to have a paid professorship at Harvard. And she really focused on American Indians and sought to dispel the notion that they were wards. Of the state. And this was a theme that I saw among a lot of the early women anthropologists, at least in the U.S. at the time, not terribly surprising that their focus, and this was with Ruth Benedict as well, a lot of their focus was among uh, American Indians and how uh, their tribes worked and also serving as liaisons between them and the government to try to make things at least a little bit more equitable and paying attention to the fact that, oh, they do have their own unique
2: cultures right. and customs and are not a monolith. Well, yeah, the idea that like, hey, these aren't just like simple minded children, the way that it was so popular to think of all of the different types of American Indians on the continent. I mean, uh here were women who were actively working, including Alice Fletcher, to counteract some of those perceptions that made it so much easier to inflict pain, suffering, racism, stereotypes on these different cultures. And it's not surprising
3: that such a smart woman would also be uh, committed to
2: suffrage, and she helped found the Association for the Advancement of Women. And then we wanted to mention Phyllis Kayberry. She was a Brit who pioneered research on men, women, and their relationships in addition to Religion. and you know, she focused on a bunch of other topics, too. And her book, Women of the Grass Fields, which became sort of an anthropology classic, focuses on women's work and rural development. So, oh my God, the concept of like women's work being something that you would write a book about fascinating. So then we move into the second wave from nineteen twenty. To 1980.
3: And this is where focus shifts more to academia. And we start to get into these concepts of sex and gender as two separate, though, interacting things and how the definition of gender differs from culture to culture. And we also have some dichotomy busting going on in this pretty broad period.
2: Right. Uh, Feminist anthropologists rejected the notion that the male and female and work versus home dichotomies were the way of the world. They argued that, hey, our social systems are dynamic. They're not static. It's not all nature versus nurture or public versus domestic or production versus reproduction. And part of what influenced these ideas was Marxism. And Marxist feminism, Uh, with the rise of this philosophy, there was more focus on women, reproduction and production, in addition to how gender relates to class, power and the modes of production. And they applied Marxist
3: models to trying to understand the subordination of women, which during this time... They consider to be basically equal across the board, equal opportunity, subordination for all women, regardless of who you
2: are, which is not always going to be the case. Yeah. And of course, by the late 70s and uh, early 80s and beyond, some of these researchers were beginning to wise up. But if we go back to Marxism specifically, there were a lot of Marxist feminists at this time who were challenging the notion that women's oppression is associated with something innate or biological. They point out that while sexual dimorphism is indeed a biological feature, it doesn't mandate the oppression of women. That's all a human creation, that women's biology is just used to facilitate their oppression and they also rejected the idea like we had talked about earlier that women are somehow closer to nature because there's that whole idea of like oh well men control property and they pass it down along patrilineal lines they overturn the whole matrilineal society and since men have control over nature and women are close to nature then therefore ergo
3: and yet again menstruation moon cycles (laughs) crimson wave it all circles back around (laughs) Uh, And listeners, for the record, I am being sarcastic. (laughs) I don't actually think that feminist anthropology is all based on uh, menstrual cycles. But moving on, many did take issue around this time with this idea of cultural feminism, which is really focused on uh, validating traditionally feminine attributes saying like, listen, there's nothing wrong with being, you know, femininity. That doesn't have to be some kind of secondary status. It's fine. Um, But on the other side, we have these more Marxist feminists. Hopefully I'm labeling that correctly, um, who were arguing that cultural feminism ignores the oppressive powers under which, traditional values were created. So basically saying, like, well,
2: all this femininity is kind of a construct anyway. Burn it all to the ground. Yeah, sure. Burn it all to the ground. But also during this time, which I... This is my own ignorance. I'm admitting it right here. In the 1920s, Zora Neale Hurston trained under Franz Boas at Barnard, as did famed anthropologist Margaret Mead. And Zora Neale Hurston was the only black student there, and she was the first to graduate from the school. And I always thought of her as a writer, as an author, I did not realize that she had an anthropological background. She became the first African-American person to chronicle fellow African-Americans' folklore and voodoo, and she drew on those observations to create her fiction, as well as being a pioneer in developing theories about the African diaspora. And a lot
3: of this, too, related to her upbringing in Eatonville, Florida, which was one of the first all-black towns incorporated in the United States. So just a fascinating tangent throughout this, you know, this whole discipline. Um, But her, even though she was a pioneer in developing theories about the African diaspora, her name ends up being omitted because she didn't finish her PhD,
2: but also, too, Because she was a black woman. Right. And those are issues that we will see crop back up um, today, all the time, constantly. They don't really crop up. They're just there. Issues of, um, I was going to say black women, but it's really women of color's voices being sort of erased and not promoted in the same way that some other people's voices are promoted within the discipline. And some of the development of
3: feminist anthropology also involved almost redoing research, going back and looking at places and cultures that people had studied in the past and reexamining them through this feminist lens. So we have this example in the 1970s of anthropologist Annette Weiner revisiting the Trobriand Islanders off the coast of New Guinea to see if Famed anthropologist Bronislaw Malinowski's research
2: checked out. Because it was this whole thing about yams, Oh, right? my God. I love this yam story. So, basically, Malinowski had said that a gift of yams from the men to their sisters' husbands uh, meant that that was a consolidation of male power. It was an exchange between men. Here are your yams. Thank you for the yams. They're delicious. I'll write a thank you note. Wiener, however, realized that it symbolized... More than that, it actually symbolized the high status of women within the culture. Why? It turns out Malinowski had completely discounted women's role in this whole transaction, not surprisingly, and he failed to realize that in return for the yams from his brother-in-law, the husband had to reciprocate by giving his wife a fancy banana leaf skirt. And the husband's potential promotion within the tribe depended on him honoring his wife. Basically, you were a deadbeat. If you didn't thank your wife for her brother's gift by giving her a banana skirt, banana leaf skirt. And even today,
3: husbands can respect their wives by going to anthropology (laughs) and buying them an overpriced (laughs) banana leaf skirt. Yet again, full circle. Uh, So that, though, concludes the second wave. And we're going to get into the third wave, which starts in the 80s and is still happening today. When we come right back
0: from a quick break.
2: No need to fake an ankle sprain because you're absolutely exhausted. So switch and save with GEICO. It's almost better than sports.
3: So the third wave starts in the 1980s, shoulder pads are jutting out, more women are entering the workplace, and anthropology is moving away from focusing solely on gender imbalances and incorporating issues of class, race, ethnicity, etc. It sounds like, in other words, feminist anthropology, which we're focusing on in this podcast episode, is getting a little more intersectional. A little
2: more intersectional, for sure. There was also more focus on the issue of power, and it was really considered a big deal because because power constructs and is constructed by identity. And just as a side note, FYI, as we get into the 90s, the average PhD grad in anthropology was a 40-year-old woman, as opposed to 100 years ago when, or 100 years before that, when the vast majority, not surprisingly, of doctorates were awarded to men under 30. So changing face of a discipline, which I find interesting. But, you know, Kristen mentioned we're getting a little intersectionality in our anthropology, which is always good. And it really comes about thanks to African-American anthropologists pointing out the failings of early anthropology beyond just the whole man-woman thing, beyond just omitting women or omitting the importance of gender. They start asking why white middle-class women are focusing so intensely on gender at the expense of racism and unequal distribution of wealth that lead to social inequalities. And lo and behold... Not all women experience gender the same.
3: So for instance, a pair of anthropologists, Nancy Shepherd Huge and Anna Singh, have emphasized that there's no universal definition for man or woman across cultures and throughout history. And furthermore, anthropologist Leela Abu Lugad has demonstrated that Bedouin women, for instance, find advantages in a gender separated Society. And oh, here's a revolutionary concept. Western concepts and constructs don't apply everywhere.
2: Yeah, I mean, so we mentioned at the top of the podcast that the origins of the scientific discipline of anthropology lie in Western cultures. Here were basically white men, not that there's anything wrong with that, going into cultures close to home or far away and reporting back on them and part of being an observer that's almost inescapable, you hope to avoid it, but it's projecting your own thoughts, feelings, morals, ideas onto the people that you're observing. And so it's, you know, people have been raising their hands throughout this whole time just going, um, um, excuse me, uh, it might be worth noting that you, your perspective is not the only one. Uh, And so that's a lot of what comes out of this third wave of feminist anthropology. They also emphasize that just like women don't experience gender the same, they don't experience suffering and oppression the same. And if we back up just a little, for instance, to 1979, technically in the second wave, uh, activist and writer Audre Lorde had penned an open letter to white feminist philosopher and theologian Mary Daly, essentially saying, like, I feel like you're celebrating the differences uh, between white women as a creative force towards change rather than a reason for misunderstanding and separation. But you fail to recognize that as women Those differences expose all women to various forms and degrees of patriarchal oppression, some of which we share, some of which we don't. And she writes, the oppression of women knows no ethnic nor racial boundaries true, but that does not mean it is identical within those boundaries. So you have a lot of thinkers at this time, a lot of writers, a lot of scholars, finally being able to have their voices heard about, listen, there are different experiences and we can't, research other cultures from one single perspective.
3: And from this, queer theory really starts to develop challenging heteronormativity the same way the early feminist anthropologists challenged androcentrism. But of course, there have been concerns, past and present, about feminist anthropology. There's the worry that it's tied too closely with feminism and is therefore politicized or radical when it needs to be impartial. Basically, you know, it becomes very subjective rather than objective. Um, And while there might be far more women in the discipline now than there used to be, those women are still largely white. It's still not a terribly
0: diverse group
2: yeah Lynn Bowles' writing in transforming anthropology in twenty thirteen argues that quote these same feminist anthropologists have rendered black feminist an- anthropology almost invisible, and on the same kind of token, Nicole Trudell of Beloit College says that despite studying race, ethnicity, and racism, hello, your anthropologists. She points out that many in the discipline, male or female, are still reluctant to have frank discussions about racism. People are very concerned about like, well, well, you look a certain way and your background is a certain thing. So you should probably just study this thing over there. She was writing about how people were so confused when she was studying minority populations in Britain uh, because they were like, well, wait, are you uh, are you British? She's like, what? I'm an anthropologist. This is what we do. We study other people, regardless of where we're from.
3: And there have also been efforts to differentiate between the anthropology of women and feminist anthropology, because the two aren't necessarily
2: synonymous. Yeah. Back in 1985, Shirley Ardener wrote in Anthropology Today that she thinks the anthropology of women denotes a field of regardless of the methodology, while the latter, feminist anthropology, implies a method of analysis or an approach rather than a field. And it's interesting, you know, Ardner herself didn't want to be pigeonholed as a feminist anthropologist. She didn't want to be labeled, congratulated for it or criticized for it. She just wanted to be an anthropologist. But she does admit that the feminist movement, Inspiring feminist anthropology also then in turn inspires the anthropology of women. So it's all related. She said that once you get more women readers and trained scholars, so you get more women's butts in the seats in the anthropology classes, then you get more of an audience for women centric research itself, which makes the research more commercially viable. It makes those women more likely or men who are studying women more likely to get funding. And she talks about how this is also when you get women's studies developing as an area of actual specialization, not something that's just like a class you take as a one-off. And so why does she think that both feminist anthropology and the anthropology of women are important? She says, listen, generalizations don't serve men well either. She writes that the specific significance of being a man in society also might get lost among those loose generalizations about man or persons instead of talking about humans, people, men and women, children, elderly, all of that stuff. That just as we want to understand more about, well, what's the woman's experience in this culture? We should also seek to understand the man's specific experience and not let either of them get too muddied by just making these generalizations about a culture. Right. And while, of
3: course, there's absolutely nothing wrong with men studying women, it's the same thing that we've talked about that you can apply to any discipline where women are important in the conversation because they bring in different perspectives and diverse perspectives create probably a more accurate and nuanced viewpoint. And it's going to help out everybody, men and women Alike. So whereas men might think of women as other, women might not. But again, of course, othering depends on your culture, and we could go down the rabbit hole sure. of all the different... Everybody can other somebody. Exactly. So what's going on today? Well, we talked about the four different flavors of anthropology, capital A anthropology, and feminist anthropology falls under cultural anthropology. And it's not just about Gender
2: today, yeah, the focus is really broadened to be beyond just like, well, hey, can we finally like get some information on women? (laughs) It's broadened to include topics including childcare, reproductive rights, control of and access to resources, and things like that. Things that are not only women's interests, as many people would lead you to believe, but are actually human interests and it's definitely helping bring increasingly diverse voices and perspectives to anthropological research and they're also organized i mean you can be a member of the association for feminist anthropology which is a branch of the american anthropological association and on their website they say that they aim to foster the development of feminist analytic perspectives in all dimensions of anthropology so you can be a fancy professional anthropologist in a fancy society and as for women in anthropology, generally speaking,
3: women receive 70 percent of those undergrad degrees, which is a pretty significant jump from those early days when we were just trying to get some recognition and like basic ethnography. Uh, when it comes to Ph.D., also the majority. We're earning 55 to 60 percent of those. But this is interesting. It should actually be higher that percentage if you take into account that fewer men are enrolling in anthropology grad school so it turns out that fewer women proportionally are sticking it out in PhDs so ladies we can dominate even more <laughs> if we really want to <laughs> well
2: yeah and so i uh, I'm, i don't think i'm going to run off and be an anthropologist beyond the type that shops at anthropology but i mean i i'm so fascinated by this development of feminist anthropology. And it makes total sense. Why wouldn't feminist anthropology develop alongside second wave feminism when you have people... From all over the world, but in this case, we're mainly talking about the West and America raising their hands, saying, like, hey, this whole Eurocentric, androcentric viewpoint you have going on is failing everyone because it's not doing any justice to the people that we're studying and the cultures that we're trying to understand. And it's really making for limited research. So we're really curious to know if there are any anthropologists or anthropology
3: students or enthusiasts listening, we would love to hear your insights because we really just had a broad brush conversation on the whole thing. And there are so many details within this that we would love to hear from you about. And you can do that by emailing us at com, or you can message us on Facebook or tweet us at podcast. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now so I've got a letter here from Pamela about our toplessness week she writes, "You asked listeners from outside the US to respond to your latest episodes. I'm from the UK, although I'm currently living in Belgium. Did you know that until this year, the biggest selling daily newspaper, The Sun, in the UK featured a topless woman on page 3 every day? A full-page photograph of a woman wearing only her underpants as soon as you opened up the biggest selling newspaper in the country." The excellent No More Page 3 campaign fought really hard to raise awareness of how sexist and outdated this was, and now there isn't a nearly naked woman on page 3 every day. Of course, the Sun said this was nothing to do with hairy-bottomed feminists whining about it, and they still occasionally feature topless women and frequently feature those dressed only in underwear. One of the biggest misconceptions was that people who were anti-Page 3 were anti-boob prudes. But it was and is all about context. Relaxing at the beach or on top of your stoop topless might help to normalize women's bodies, but putting them in a quote-unquote family newspaper in an effort to titillate does the opposite. If you're not aware of the background to the No More Page 3 campaign, check it out. It was founded by Lucy Holmes and taken up by thousands of men and women all over the country. So thanks for that insight, Pamela.
2: Well, I have a letter here from Bessie. She says, I've been listening to your nipple episodes today, and it made me want to share a short anecdote. I grew up in a rough inner city school system and got more scare tactics than information in my sex ed classes. This meant that when my older sister sat my brother down for a feminist strong arm talk, topics included male privilege, pregnancy scare, do's and don'ts, etc. I listened in when she got to the biological stuff. It was super helpful. Everyone should have a feminist older sister. I totally recommend it. But when it came to what you mentioned in your episode, the idea that women just simply don't know what other real breasts look like because of all that shaming, self-initiated, or otherwise, even my sister's feminist pep talk didn't help. It wasn't until much later when I was watching, of all things, an episode of Scrubs that I finally found out a particular aspect of my own breast, which I had hitherto assumed was some hideous aberration, was totally normal. The joke was a toss-away sort of joke about how the two male characters are so close and I can't remember how it actually went. All I remember is that the crux was that Carla's breasts had hairs growing around the nipples that Turk had lovingly depicted as a sort of breast-slash-seal in a cartoon. I too had hairs around my nipples and this was the first time, the absolute first time, I had come across proof that others did too. Thankfully, the tone of the joke was in Carla's favor. Turk is lovingly fond of the hairs around her nipples, which made me feel comfortable with my nipple hairs, too. I'm super grateful for your show taking on this topic, as I have often found myself to be. You guys tend to take on the topics I don't quite think of to tackle myself, but prove to be hugely rewarding once actually faced. Well, thank you, Bessie. I love that letter. And thanks to
3: everybody who's written into us. Mom at com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media as well as all of our blogs, videos and podcasts with this one with links to all of our sources so you can learn more about feminist anthropology and women in anthropology that you should know. Head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. this and thousands of other topics visit howstuffworks.com
1: so here's something that some of you might find shocking 95 percent of women don't feel good about their hair but pantene is changing that pantene's rosewater collection combats bad hair days with an innovative formula that uses rosewater derived from the petals and buds of the rosa gallica plant With Pantene's Rosewater Collection, I can really feel how much more hydrated my hair is. And it's sulfate, paraben, dye, and mineral oil-free, which makes me feel good because who needs all those additives? Experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection. This episode is brought to you by NBC's
0: Good Girls. The new season of NBC's Good Girls is generating serious buzz. Christina Hendricks, Retta, and Mae Whitman are hilarious as America's favorite moms turned criminals. This show is the perfect blend of comedy, action, and romance. No wonder critics call Good Girls your next TV addiction.
1: And Rotten Tomatoes rates it 100% fresh.
0: Ooh, Good Girls, Sundays on NBC.
1: The new season has already had some wild twists, so watch live. And stream anytime.